You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew, ew! Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Romana Sotus. Romana is a playwright and a performer who just closed a show at La Mama called Martyrs. We were introduced by my friend Perone Yusufzada, who's been a past guest on the podcast. It was so nice to meet Romana and talk about the production before I actually saw it. I just saw it on Sunday, their closing show. And I'm sorry you can't catch it, but hopefully you'll see something that she's involved in very soon. She has a very unique voice, really um, challenging type of theater, very experimental, which I love. And she has a longstanding relationship with La Mama. So keep your eye on them. I'm sure you'll see her there soon. La Mama just won the regional Tony, so congratulations to them on that. That's really amazing. They've been around for so long doing, you know, really exciting work that pushes a lot of boundaries. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the 118th episode of The Compass. What do you do to try to keep from going to the dark side as an artist? Yes. I was, like, I... I feel like everybody is just like, I was ready for the question, and then it got hit, it hit me, (laughs) and I'm no longer ready. Um, I've been, like, thinking about that question a lot recently, especially coming out of just finishing up the show and writing it and producing it, and, like, there were a lot of other things I did because it's my baby. You do everything for it. Um, And there were definitely quite a few times that I very much did go to the dark side and like very much felt the darkness of being an artist like very close to me and like very much on my skin so it feels very recent to talk about it and I think I think the big thing for me when it comes to the darkness is I feel like there are so many different understandings of what it means. Mm -hmm. It can be everything from jealousy and wanting what other people have or what you perceive other people to have. And it can be a sense of hopelessness that like comes with that. Like, oh, I'm not as far as I need to be. I'm not going where I need to be going. Or you go into the places of insecurity where it's like, well, clearly I'm not good enough to be going down this path that I see other people going down. And it's just there are so many different layers of it. And I think something that I recently realized and understood was 
so often the darkness is what we really, really, really ignore in the sense that like, as an example, vulnerable, letting it all out. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Okay. Um, I, I have depression and anxiety like so many other people mm-hmm. and I take medication in order to help with that. But that doesn't change the fact that I like kind of have these panic attacks that go into like really intense self-deprecation and like isolation and like lashing out at people I love and hurting people that care about me and really going into like this very dark place. Even with the medication? Even with the medication. I still like have these things, my friends and family and I call it like these spirals. Mm -hmm. It's just like going down the drain really. Just like these spirals of me getting sucked into myself something that I've really been like understanding and realizing a lot lately when it comes to that darkness is like very often what happens with the darkness is there are fears that live inside your head I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to make a life doing what I want I'm afraid that I'm going to build something that I'm proud of and no one's going to come I'm afraid of success because what if I put myself out there and I really go for it and someone else just slid in because they had better timing or a better line or a better whatever or nobody cares yeah and you get into those head spaces and you have these fears like there's really understandable really relatable fears but they're scary they're huge and very often there's like this feeling of buckling down and just getting through it, just like pushing to the other side and ignoring those fears. But at the same time, you want some sense of like encouragement and comfort and like, I know you're scared this thing's gonna happen, but it's not gonna happen. Like, it'll be different. You have this happening or you plan this. Like, you wanna feel as though someone's gonna like see into you see your fears, know the perfect thing to say to you, and then say it. And so you're like hypervigilant about what other people are saying. Like, what did blah, blah, blah say when they walked into the room and they saw a little bit of the show and they like thought this thing and that's going to make me feel good. Yeah. That's going to be the thing. That's going to give me like the validation and the recognition and they're going to like see my fear through my words and read it and then come to me and be like it's going to be okay and then the little voice is just going to quiet down but that doesn't really happen instead you become hyper vigilant and you read into things people say and you like focus on it and you reread messages and you like forward them to your friends going what does this mean and you're like really intense about other people's voices and so that little voice inside of you that's going wait 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 a second like I'm the one like I'm the one you should be listening to over here like I'm the one who's trying to talk to you like you have to do it for yourself like you're not responding to any of my text messages (laughs) and like I've called you a bunch of times and like I have locations like we have location on each other I know you're at home like I know you have nothing better to do but to listen to me and then there comes this point where that little inner monologue's like, 
I need to get listened to. I need, like, I need you to finally listen to me. And because our, like, brains are wired in a certain way, you say the craziest, most outrageous, intense thing just to get your own attention. Hmm. You say the darkest thing. You say the scariest thing. You beat yourself up before you give other people the chance to beat you up. And it get, it turns into a spiral. That's, that's, that is the process that happens to me. There just comes this one moment where like there's just one too many disappointments regarding something. And your head, like that little voice is like, okay, I'm not taking it anymore. I'm going to say all these things. I'm going to say the worst thing possible to myself. And a spiral happens and it's really, it's really intense and it's really scary. And I think that darkness really just is, it's ignored fear. It's really like you're quite literally ignoring a part of yourself. And how else are you going to get your own attention when you won't listen to the kind things you say to yourself? You won't take ownership of those things, but you're listening hyper intensely to a tiny thing that someone said that might be referring to you. Hmm. You're betraying yourself in a way. You're ignoring yourself. And something that I have been working on like in therapy and in my personal life is really understanding like maybe maybe the solution or not even a solution to these spirals but maybe a way to catch it before it gets bigger and overwhelming and scary is just listening to the fears just listening to your own brain say i'm really scared that nothing good is going to happen from me putting my heart and soul out there in the world. And I'm really, really scared to do it. And a part of me doesn't want to do it anymore. And I don't know what to do because I'm scared. And like, yeah, it's just, I think, I think the main thing I do to combat the darkness or what I'm at least trying to do, I'm practicing to do, I'm working through to do, is listening to those fears, letting myself have a voice and like speak to myself. Um, it kind of reminds me of uh, the monologue in A Dollhouse Part Two, um, where Nora's talking about how she had to go off to an isolated cabin after she left. And she just she wanted to be out there for as long as it took for her to hear her own voice in her head she heard her mother's voice she heard like everybody else's voice but she didn't hear her own and she needed to just go and be away and like take the time to finally listen to her own voice and in the play she says it took years to finally hear it and i think that's so true and so difficult because we're constantly told that other people's opinions are more important than our own 
you have to be humble you have to I mean nothing against humility I think humility is complicated and interesting but (laughs) um but you have to well that's how we measure ourselves yeah or people say it shouldn't be important but that's how our whole society is structured exactly (laughs) like every validation it's that whole thing of like Everybody knows how long it takes for someone like Kim Kardashian to look the way she does, but we're all still buying into the illusion that she woke up like that. <laughs> and like that that's the standard everybody's got to meet. Like this idea, like I still do it to myself. Like when I go shopping, like my personal like desire is total comfort. Like I just want to be right. comfortable, <laughs> but I also like want to look very cool and I don't want to like look like I'm trying to look cool, but I like want to be comfy, but I also want to look cool. Right. And if I'm too comfy, I don't look cool. You're thinking about the other people. Yeah. I'm like thinking you. about that. I just like, I'm just like, Oh, I just like want a sweater that I can like throw on with jeans and I look like model. And it's like, <laughs> That's not how life or brain works. You know what I mean? But, like, it's the same thing. We all kind of, like, tell ourselves, like, oh, we didn't study for the test. We just, like, got an A. And there's so much work that goes behind it and, like, it takes to get there. And sometimes I I, I think something I really love is I love it when people acknowledge, like, how much hard work it took to do something I think it's so cool and refreshing when people like really acknowledge it and they're like yeah I like didn't sleep and like I didn't work out and I like just focused on this one thing and I really wish I had taken care of myself but like it took this much work to do it that we were watching have you ever heard of chef's table yes I love (laughs) chef's table we've watched like most of it but now we're Mm -hmm. just started the one that's only desserts yeah are you you're in pastry Yes. But the first one is the woman who Christina Tosi. Yeah. My partner and I have a huge crush on Christina Tosi. <laughs> she's we, so charming. She's so wonderful. But I one thing one, it was not my favorite episode. Oh but I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> I wanted to leave her last. Like I know she's first in the queue, but we like watched all the it, other it ones first because we were like Christina's last. I didn't think like the the way they decided to tell the story was the best. But anyway, the one thing that she said, which I was like, well, thank you for being honest. And it just stuck out with me. was like, she's like, well, there were about 10 years before anything. There were about 10 years in my career before anything that anyone cares about happened. For sure. That anyone wants to talk to me about happened. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Because that, uh, you know, people always skip over. Yeah, always. The hard parts. Oh. And that's what's most interesting to me. Hundo P. Like, so true. Like, yeah. it's wild how much... What's it called? I, uh, I was having, um... I was having, like, some stress and anxiety regarding the show that just went up, Martyrs. Mm-hmm. Um, I was having some stress and anxiety about it, and, um my uh the woman who directed my one woman show hyena two years ago her name's rachel levins she's great um she came to this show and we were hanging out after the show and just kind of talking about it and she was like romana you need to stop comparing yourself to all of the other shows going on in the city because 
almost all of them, this is like their third run. Like they've had years and so much money to incubate this project. Mm -hmm. And you're comparing yourself to these shows that like have way bigger budgets, have way more people working on them, have way more people promoting them, have like just so much more behind it. Not to mention how much time it took just to get that show to where it is. Like, I remember I was reading like one of the bulletins from like the newsletters from Ars Nova and they were like, we just closed a show we worked on for five years. Uh And I'm like, what would it be like to work on one project for five years? Like, oh my God, please. Like, no, I mean, it would be amazing. And then also, I think, sometimes frustrating for oh, the writers. because super frustrating. The process of, new, of like, new play development and stuff now can be, like, no one wants to spend the money on giving you a production, but they'll give you a workshop 20 times. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, <laughs> so true. They'll give you a retreat for yeah. three days. They'll give you retreats. They'll give you workshops. They'll give you rehearsal yeah. space. They'll yeah. be like, yeah, 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 work on it. Iron it out. But the... Like, Let's talk about Martyrs. Let's um, talk about it. <laughs> since we're getting there. Um, so this production that's about to close at La Mama, this is very early in the process for you? I mean, it is the... So we did... Um, so our director, Peron Yusufzada, yes. you had on the podcast. Been on the podcast. You oh. keep talking and I'll figure out what episode so they can tell people. Oh, please do. She <laughs> is amazing. She's wonderful. I love her so very much. She's so smart. She is. God, she's such a good director. Um, there's one thing we'll get out of this interview is that everyone should hire Peron <laughs> all the time, always. I think, uh, so we had two workshops. We had one, like, weekend workshop like three days Mm -hmm. and then we had a seven week long workshop where most of it lived at the table like it was mostly like reading around the table and like doing edits and then we had this production so even though I personally have been writing this and like letting it marinate in my head for like two and a half years even though it's like been living in my brain for that long, the only time that it's actually like been worked on and like workshopped with actors, which I think is essential for playwriting. Like there are so many edits you can do in like your room with a computer, but the play is not going to open up and actually talk to you until you get bodies in that room. Um, and we did two... Uh, we did two uh, workshops, one super short one and one longer one, even though we only met like once a week, once every couple of days. Um, And it's funny because like I think about where the show was in July when we did this like weekend workshop and where it is now. And like the script went from 19 pages of like, I don't know where this is, it's two people, but I think it's more people. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what the plot is. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing. But like these images are really, really important to me, and I think they all work together. And I need like bodies to help me figure it out. And I need a brain 
that doesn't think like mine to look at it and to like give me opinions and to like pull out what's real and what serves the show and go hey that's not that's not benefiting the show that's taking away from it and uh so we did that and so it's since like tripled in size not to mention the fact like it went from two characters and it was like essentially like a two-hander to it became nine performers playing two characters so there's it's a big cast it's a huge <laughs> cast oh nice. they're great oh god they're so talented um, Perone was on episode 27 by the way guys oh yeah go please go, go listen back. to it she's <laughs> super super smart really really thoughtful yeah just like it grew so much so even even like even in this rehearsal process like major script changes like so originally when I wrote it I wrote like essentially a two-hander like these two characters that live in this world and slowly but surely like with time I figured some stuff out but at the end of our uh like fall seven week workshop we um like we had nine ladies and they were all very very talented and we had like two nights of showings and originally like I knew that it was a bunch of people playing these two characters but I didn't know how it was going to be divided up and I really wanted to like have a script that like like left room for interpretation so like a director could pick it up and go like oh there are two characters played by three people or six people or 12 people I'll divide it up how I see interesting Mm -hmm. but then we like kind of did a version of that in the workshop and it was confusing for people and they didn't really understand and so Perone and I sat there like right before the second showing and we were talking and I was like I need to break up this script don't I like I need to assign these lines don't I she's like yeah you do and I think it's nine people and I'm like you're right it is nine people like we just kind (laughs) of like sat there and we just like understood something about the play together and I like went and I did it and like for three days straight I had like 12 highlighters (laughs) and like different colored pens and I did it first in the script and then I did it in the computer and then I printed it and did it in the script again and I was also applying for grad school and like there was a million things going on um yeah but you needed that first audience for sure you need to figure it out yeah I mean I think it's it's really true what they say like theater is a space an actor and an audience and like those things are really important in order for the art form to have life to like you can't look at a painting without light um or the opposite with black light I don't know that's a kind (laughs) of light um but yeah I think I mean I started I started out in theater as a performer and I really thought that's what I wanted I thought like oh I just want to be I want to be a medium for the words and now that I really I I like self-identify as a playwright and like really see myself as like being someone who wants to live in that medium and create work from that space I 
can't deny the fact that like I really want to be a performer's playwright Mm. in the sense that like I really want to be the kind of playwright that like an actress picks up a script in the drama bookshop and she's like am I allowed to swear in yeah fuck (laughs) okay great um like I want her to pick up a script and be like holy shit like this is the monologue or like this is the scene you know what I mean like because I remember sitting in the drama bookshop pouring over scripts and just like not finding that kind of stuff Mm. for me or like if it was there it was for like someone who was 30 years older and like finding it really difficult to like find great meaty scenes and great meaty monologues for someone like me and like I'm a queer person and like I'm a femme person and I wanted work that like played with that Mm -hmm. and so often like these scenes were like really heteronormative or like really focused on like high school struggles or like quarter life crisis struggles that were very particular to like a cis straight white understanding of what a like quarter life crisis is and it felt very it felt very frustrating to me to like be in this space where I wanted to perform certain feelings that I had and certain frustrations and vulnerabilities and like agonies inside of me that like I felt like I was building up the training to tap into and then just not have it just kind of like look at really a lot of this a lot of the same scenes a lot of the same monologues a lot of the same things and And when you're in school it's like it's okay for you to play the 50 year old exactly all the time or to play something that you're never going to get cast in yeah in real life when you're trying to make a career of it exactly much harder and I think not to mention unsatisfying (laughs) (laughs) totally (laughs) not to mention the fact that like I think I don't know they're like I think it's funny there's this I think like people are always saying like theater is the dying like dying diva or something there's like some turn of phrase Mm. but essentially saying that like theater's always constantly on the brink of dying which I couldn't disagree more with but I think something that I really understand and see is theater does have a does have a tendency to does have a tendency to do things that make sense in the in the way that like it makes sense for a regional theater to do a two-hander play set in a living room with a bookcase and a secret tm perone she always makes a joke about the bookcase <laughs> and the secret but she's a regional director and she's been to a lot yeah. of different spaces and she knows what it's like it makes it makes sense it it's really sensible for a regional theater to sell tickets to sell tickets and to do a play that isn't isn't financially ambitious or which sometimes equally equates to artistically ambitious like very often if you want to like I sit there and I think about um a view from a bridge uh which Eva von Hove did on Broadway mm-hmm. and spoilers um like when the blood just like 
falls from the ceiling. And they've been on this set that's essentially been built for this moment, this very spectacular moment. And I sit there and I'm like, oh, that's so expensive. (laughs) And like, oh, I can't imagine like the stage management team, how late they have to stay to clean it all up because it's all wet. And it's just like, (laughs) it's like this like very white, wet set that's like completely drenched. But I love it. It like, it brought me catharsis. It did exactly what theater is supposed to do. I was just like, yes, this is like spectacular. Like the art of spectacle was very well done here and it gave me what I wanted, um, which I loved. And, but you're not going to see that done in most yeah. theaters. You're just not. And very often, like when a theater wants to do edgy stuff, it's very often like it's still a small cast and it's still one room and it's still a secret, but the secret is way more taboo. Right. But it's a two person cast. But it's a two person cast about a secret, but like, and it's probably two men. (laughs) It's most definitely two men. It's hard and it's frustrating because I think that there are really cool stories that need to be told in a, very different spectacular way and that doesn't necessarily have to be expensive doesn't you don't have to do an expensive show in order for it to be a really difficult and unsettling and unique show and that comes with a lot of generosity I think it comes with a it comes with a a sense that like Something that I consider myself very lucky, specifically with this production, is that I had a really incredible crew and a really incredible cast that acknowledged that they were there because they were passionate about the work that they were doing. And that meant that they had to be generous with their time, with their knowledge, with their expertise, with their patience. So incredibly generous with their patience. And there were such difficult bumps in the road, really difficult bumps in the road that could have completely undermined the production. Could have, it could have really, it could have really undermined it. And if I didn't have such an incredible team that were generous enough to give their time, give their energy, clarify things work through things work Mm. through issues like it's just it's beyond amazing and when I sit there in that audience and I watch those nine incredible women do a really physically challenging and emotionally challenging show in 90 minutes with a phenomenal set and really difficult to pull off like special effects and like all of these things that were they were given to the play they were there were these really amazing it was this just this amazing team that went I want to make this play happen I want to make this world come to life I mean that has to be the most amazing thing oh my about god being a writer is because it is a communal communal art form to oh see everyone god. get excited about it yeah and troubleshoot it and figure it out it's I think something that I find 
Really interesting. We, so like, again, there's no more thing of spoilers because the show has passed, but <laughs> um, there is this one scene. So one of the things that I kind of describe as like a, a feeling of the play is um, Martyrs is my personal exploration in the Ouroboros of self-hatred, just like a tail eating, like a snake eating its own tail mm. and like self-hatred moves in that way. It spirals and it's constantly eating itself. And quite literally, I have three of the performers, one of the characters, eat their own insides and their own entrails and their own intestines I quite literally have them Ouroboros themselves uh-huh. sorry I know you're coming to see the show on Sunday and <laughs> I okay. ruined it but it, it we it's earn it let's just say like, now I'm more excited <laughs> like we've earned it we earned that moment but it was I just remember sitting in this one production meeting and everyone's talking very seriously about how we're going to pull off these performers eating their own entrails <laughs> and like the dilemma of if we're going to have like a really gory scene, then it needs to be edible blood, but it can't be edible blood without like chocolate syrup because we need to get it out of the white costumes. Cause all of the performers <laughs> are wearing white and we can't have stains and we can only like, it's ridiculous, but we only have one set of like pajamas. <laughs> we don't have any more sets of so pajamas, which I, is I, so I, stressful for everyone. Play about the Donner party. That was all about cannibalism. Oh we my had God. Many similar conversations, but like, Very it's just, you have to have this talk and like, it's just, I kind of sit there and I was like, oh, I put this thing in this play and people are taking it very seriously. I put, I put this thing in this play <laughs> and people are like, okay, we got to make this work. And I'm like, why? And, but at but the you same time, you're like, no, this is no, right. <laughs> it has to happen. Like they have to eat themselves. Um, but there were also other things where like, I noticed this thing specifically with like cis-straight white male playwrights, that there is a rigidity in what they've created, how they see the work, and being very, um, being very forceful with what is in the play and what belongs there. And I think while it's incredibly admirable to stand up for your work, which I think is essential, you have to be able to say like, no, I'm not budging on this. This is important for like the dramaturgy of the play or what's going on. I think there's also an inflexibility with other people understanding your story better than you do. Hmm. I think the thing that like was very different for me this time around, like when I did Hyena, I performed the show. So I was there the whole time and I was in the dressing room and I did the show, I did the whole thing. But being just the playwright, I didn't have to be at every single rehearsal. I wanted to be there and I wanted to be able to like see things and respond, but we put a freeze on the script for the last week of rehearsals. So we froze the script, it was done, no more edits, like maybe one or two words, but like really just kind of froze the script and Prone was just kind of like, go on a walk. Like, you don't need to be here right now. Like, we're just, we're running through things. We're working through things. Like, 
and I trust her and I trusted the performers and I trusted everybody in the room and I remember like the night before we opened and we had finished our dress rehearsal and we were all like finishing things up and Perone and all of our designers were like sitting together and they were like troubleshooting an issue. I think there was like an issue with um, like a, they were trying to answer a dramaturgical question about the bathroom and like they were all talking amongst each other and it was beautiful to watch and I just I had this realization where I was like oh this is the moment I need to let go like this is the moment where I kind of like just take my hands off the steering wheel and I trust the people that I brought into this room and I trust the performers and I trust the designers and I trust stage management and I trust my director and I was just like okay guys like I'm gonna go home like I'm gonna go to sleep like (laughs) I'm gonna go home and I cried because it was like watching something that I'd created like stand on its own two feet and that was that like just like my team had given me the generosity of sharing themselves with this process I needed to be generous enough as a writer to let them have it and like I'm a living playwright I'm gonna be in the room I want to see how it's done I want to respond to the performers I want to like have that interaction but I also need to understand that like theater is inherently collaborative it's designed that way and it works best in that way I personally believe Mm -hmm. and as a playwright I feel like it is my responsibility to listen and that's I think that's my number one job like rewrites and getting the rewrites in on time is definitely my job but like I think my number one job is to like listen to people and to listen to the director and to the designers and to the performers and like listen to them and go yeah they they bring up a really good point about this world like they're bringing up a really good question and like them asking me that question would then inspire me to go into the text and like unpack even cooler stuff yeah like cooler stuff that I don't think I would have found if I was just like alone in my room like trying to negotiate this world and I just I I think that that's and it's hard because you also want to like answer everybody's questions like that was something that definitely happened in the rehearsal room all the time where like a performer would ask a question and I'd like dive in and like try and give it to them because I thought that my success or failure as a playwright was if all of my answers were embedded in the text and then Perone would just kind of like turn to me and go like we got this like you're good. You don't need to have an answer. You don't need to have an answer. Yeah. And um, you don't have to have an answer. You don't have to. And like, it made me think about two different things. One, it made me think about how difficult Chekhov is when you first start doing it and how you feel like none of the answers are in the text there. And it's not until you work through it and you like mine it that you like realize like, oh, there's a lot of hard work I need to do to figure out these answers. And, like, it's really difficult. So, no, the the success of a play is not having all of the answers embedded in the text. I think the success of a play is, like, 
does it set up a really cool playground for people to just go ham on? <laughs> like, does it set up a really amazing playground for other people to figure out cool things to do on and to play with and to do? And the other thing it made me think of is um, I heard this rumor that um, whenever someone does a Susan Laurie Parks play, the director gets to email, like, email her a couple of questions and apparently the rumor is that when she responds her only response is what do you think (laughs) so like someone will do a production of top dog underdog and be like well I don't really understand like what does Lincoln mean when this happens and it's like what do you think (laughs) and I started like trying to like use that as my own mantra of like you just have to be generous and like ask someone else what they think and listen because yeah, it's just, it's, it's about being generous and it's about listening. And I think it's kind of funny that like I'm talking about how important listening is to being a playwright. And at the beginning when we were talking about darkness, I was also like, listen to your fears. Like it's just mm-hmm. about listening. I think our world would be a lot better off if more people knew how to listen. I know, right? Yeah. Like it's hard and it's I'm a terrible listener in so many other realms of my, like, life. I, like, I assume I know what other people think better than they do. Mm. I'm quick to judgment. I'm quick to assumption. I read into things. Like, I'm not a great listener when it comes to a lot of things in my life. I think I know better. And playwriting and theater is... A space where I don't have to do that and I don't want to it's a space where I feel the most at home just listening to people because I really just want to hear what they think not in a like value based like I think this good play I think this bad play like I very much want to hear what they think because I set up a question and their answer is creating another question and it builds the world like that's how the world gets built like the world doesn't get built in the playwright's head where they figure out every single nook and cranny of this world the world gets built when you listen to someone else exploring it in a way that you have it because for me personally like when I think about a play and when I am building a world very often like I try to physicalize a specific like sensation that I'm feeling in my own head so for example with martyrs I really wanted martyrs to feel like Costco pajamas that sensation of going to your grandmother's house and like forgetting your pajamas and the only thing that's there is like Costco pajamas that she bought and like putting them on and that sense of like comfort and discomfort that comes with that sensation and like I wanted to make a play that felt like that in a weird way and because I'm thinking about it in that kind of a like visceral textural way I'm missing the answers to certain questions like the logic of the world like 
I'm like, oh, this feels really good. and feels really nice. This feels like Costco pajamas. Right, but that's just where you start. Exactly. Like, if that's the For key, sure. key to your process and getting you to start a play, then great. Yeah, but the thing is, it's also really important to have, like, a director come in and be like, yes, this very and. much feels like Costco pajamas. <laughs> and what does this say about this world? Right. And I'm like, oh. Oh, I have to answer logic. Like yeah. I have, like I built a universe. <laughs> I have to answer for Sometimes it now. You need a reminder for sure. And it's really important. And it's really important to just like be able to like look at your script and go, I really love this, but it doesn't belong anymore. And saying goodbye to it with grace and with like gratitude, and like knowing that it's still feeding the play because. I think that's what I mean when I say that, like, I see this issue. I see these things in plays where I can tell that the playwright just really loved this one moment. Mm -hmm. And it's not serving the production. It's not serving the Mm -hmm. actors. It's not serving, but, like, you can tell that the playwright loved this moment for whatever reason. Because it sounded just the way they wanted it to sound. They couldn't let go of it. And that's where this lack of generosity kind of feels for me. Because, like, there is, if a writer doesn't write words for a performer, the performer doesn't have something to go on stage and do, and if the lighting designer isn't there to light them, then that moment doesn't live the same way, and if there's no sound designer to create, like, an aural experience, then how do we know what world, like, it's, everybody's connected to each other, and they need each other, and when you need someone in that way, it has to be a relationship and relationships are built on communication and listening and compromise and generosity. It's just, I think that's the coolest part of theater for me. Just like the really amazing exploration of give and take and listening and communicating. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass about your relationship with La Mama and how that came about? For sure. Um, so it looks like that's been a long-standing one. Yeah. Um, La Mama's my home, for sure. Um, I um, started my relationship with La Mama when I was a sophomore in college. Did you move to New York for college? At yes. Florida? Okay. So I, I like, I was, I moved around all the time. My mom was working for Coca-Cola and my dad is a priest, so he could go wherever. (laughs) That's a whole story. (laughs) Um, But we moved around a lot. And I applied for, so essentially when I applied to college, I applied to a bunch of conservatory programs Mm -hmm. and I applied to a couple of like liberal arts schools and I got rejected from all the conservatory programs. I was devastated. I thought, oh, this is the universe telling me that this isn't the life for me. Like, I need to give up. 
but I got accepted to Fordham at Lincoln Center. And my friend had applied for their theater program, but I hadn't. I didn't really even know about it. You just applied. I just applied. As a it was a, student. It was a, it was a Catholic university in New York City. It ticked <laughs> off the box for my parents. It ticked off the box for me. Like, I got to be in New York. Catholics were around. Like, it was that, like, they were like, as long as Safety. she's around them, it's good Safety. enough. Like, let's, let's just make sure she's near a cathedral. Um, she can hear the bells. Um, I did from my dorm room That'd window. Be- that always looked like a beautiful cathedral when I would walk by. Yeah, it is pretty in there. Um, and you see a lot of Fordham students in there. Lots of, like, lots of Fordham students are, like, actual Catholics. It's wild. Um, and then a lot are not. Did um, you meet Perone at Fordham? Because I know no, she taught there a she little did. bit. she um, did. She and I, um, she and I connected through, like, um, our sound designer, Emily Osiello, and I went to Fordham at the same time. And Perone did do a show while I was at Fordham, but I wasn't associated with that show. Okay. So I knew her name and like her profile would appear in like people you know on Facebook. But it wasn't until I was working on this show and like actively looking for a director that like our lighting designers, Cecilia Durbin and Emily Osiello, who came onto the project before we had a designer attached or a director attached. Um, they were like, you really should talk to Perone. So that's how we connected. But I went to Fordham, I did a tour, and my mom was like, oh, look, there's like the theater board. And so, lo and behold, I applied. We have like main stages and like studio shows. And the studio shows were all like student run. And so I applied. I like auditioned for all the studio shows. And I got into one of them, which was Jean Genet's The Maids. Mm -hmm. And I played Claire. And after, like, it went really, really well. And afterwards, Matthew McGuire, who ran the program, was like, if you ever want to talk about being in the theater department, just, like, shoot me an email. So I did. He was like, okay, we have two options. We can either have you, like, start, like, the theater department, like, the theater major Mm -hmm. next year. And you can finish the major in three years but you won't be like with your class in their classes. You'll be with the freshmen, but you'll still graduate with your class. Right. You can like finish the major in three years and you can get like a bunch of the core curriculum done your first year. Cause it's a BA program, not a BFA. Right. Um, so we had like a BFA s- snuck under a BA. So we had like all of these core classes and then like lab hours, which were just other theater classes. Right. And um, I was like, yeah, I don't want to wait a year, and I don't want to, like, do that. Like, is there any other option? He's like, well, we could, like, hold an audition, and you could essentially, like, apply to skip Acting 101. Like, you could essentially, like, apply to skip the first, like, the first semester of classes. And you can just, like, keep going with your, like, with your graduating class. And I went, yeah, let's do that. So... I went into like one of the black box like things and I did a monologue in front of a bunch of the like faculty and then I got a call that night and they were like, okay, you can start next semester. (laughs) It's fine. So I did that and um, I was in this really frustrating limbo at Fordham where I was getting to like final callbacks for a lot of things, but I just wouldn't get the part. Like I... 
I just like would get to that place and then just not get the actual role. And that happened to me a couple of times. And I was really frustrated because I wanted, I was like really eager. I was really hungry. I really wanted to be doing stuff. So my mom, who's very Ukrainian, was like, there is a woman who's doing Ukrainian theater at La Mama. You should like, we should see if we know anybody in common. Lo and behold, they know somebody in common. <laughs> and so I went and I started connecting with this woman named Virlana. And she ran, and she still runs, this company called Yara Arts Group from La Mama. And they're one of the resident theater companies. And she's been there forever. She's been there for a really long time. I'm going to have to ask my dear friend, I feel like, worked for her when she lived in New York years ago. I believe ago. it. Um, I'm going to have to ask her because this sounds way too familiar. No, please <laughs> ask her. And so I like... I essentially like did my classes and then I would go to her apartment and I would do like internship stuff. So yeah. I'd copy edit the newsletter, I would scan research documents, I would help her write grants. And then when shows would come up, I would like assist and direct the shows. And so I connected with her from in like that direction. And I like got to know La Mama by like helping her with her shows. And I also learned about what it took to actually like make a show happen. Like, yeah, I remember saying, yeah, I like first, the first time I ever went to her apartment, I went to do like envelope stuffing because she was still doing like in mail newsletters. Like she had like an online newsletter, but she would mail hundreds like maybe even like close to maybe even over a thousand like physical newsletters that we would sit in her apartment and like stuff and like drink tea and talk and like just stuff all these letters and like I watched it be successful like I watched checks come into the mail and like I saw people who like got this <laughs> newsletter come to the show like I saw the trajectory of this thing happening and like understanding what it took and so I worked with Yara Arts Group for, um, like, I'd say a year and a half, like two years. And then in my senior year, I had, like, this idea for this cabaret show that I was going to do because all my friends were musicians at the time. And I, like, emailed, like, I had gotten to know, like, the the like leadership team at La Mama, which is Mia Yu and Mary Fulham and Beverly Petty. Like I got to know all of them just like through being in the Yara Arts Group thing and like just seeing them and connecting with them and starting to be like slowly become part of the La Mama family. And I just like emailed her one day. And I was like, I have this idea and I don't know if it's a good idea or a bad idea, but I like to talk to you about it. And she was like, okay, come into the office. So I did, and I told her my idea. She was like, okay, sure, let's try it. Like, let's just do a weekend. Like, let's see what we do for a weekend. So I was a nut job. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to design this thing and direct this thing and write this thing and help these things and, like, do six million things, and I'm going to do it in a week. Oh, my God. And I did. I did it in a week. <laughs> While going to college. While going to college at the same time. I did it all in a week, and it was insane. And afterwards... I like had a meeting with Beverly Petty, who's the producing director, and she was like, great, you did your first thing. 
we're so happy you're talented. We're like, it's great. We're really lucky that you're talented because you could have not been. Like we just like, we took a nice chance and we're so <laughs> happy that you have talent. We're really, really happy about it. But come on, like let's have a real rehearsal process. Like yeah. let's, let's like, that let's do this. For me like that watch. was stressful for me to watch you do. <laughs> like that, I had a hard time watching you do right. this. Yeah, right. Like let's, like let's, let's have a script. Like, let's have designers. Like, let's have a director. Like, let's do this. And I was like, okay, sure. And so I did um, my next show, Hyena, which was a one-woman show. And it went really well. And I was really happy with how it went. And we went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And we did the United Solo Festival. And after that, it was just like, next step. Let's do three weekends in the downstairs. And I was like, okay, more. Like, let's keep going. And I think... I'm, I know that it's a very unique and very lucky position that I'm in to be, to be like a senior in college and like be able to go into the office of the artistic director of one of the most important theaters in the city. They just won the regional Tony. Our photo is in like the press release for all of that. We're like on Playbill. It's like, <laughs> no big deal, whatever. Um, but uh like it's it's an institution yeah but I love I love that it's so accessible it's so accessible and I think a huge I think for me the big thing about it is like the philosophy that Ellen Stewart really started there of like just taking a chance on people just really taking a chance on people like I cannot tell you how many stories I've heard of Ellen just like looking at someone and going, okay, yeah, let's like, let's try this. Let's yeah. just like see what happens. Like, I think, like, I heard this story about how like she just met Andre Serban when she was in Serbia and, or no, in Romania. And when she was in Romania and she met him, he was just like this, like, assistant director, like in this theater. And he was like, oh, okay, like, let's pick you up and let's like make you huge. And then they did the Trojan Women, which is like one of the most revelatory theatrical experiences in history, I personally believe. That's so exciting. Not, it's like just exciting to see them give the regional Tony to a theater like that. I know, right? It does truly experimental work. Like does really do it. Like, like I remember work. I saw a play that was puppet chairs. It was just chairs. It was called The Chairs. It was a play where chairs were puppets. And I don't see that anywhere else. Like, I just don't. And they are a space that does really weird stuff. And they're, they, they really do take chances on people. And I think so, so often La Mama is kind of like, I put this I don't think they're appreciated very much I don't think that it's a I don't think that it's a theater that gets appreciated specifically by people my age in the sense that like there is always it goes back to that feeling of like ambition and intensity there's this feeling of like if I'm not in the playwrights group of Ars Nova or if I'm not in the public playwrights group, or if I'm not in these like big prestigious places, then I don't have value or I don't have space. And what La Mama really does is they kind of sit there and they go, like, experiment and be weird. Like, we're gonna take a chance on you to really experiment and really be weird and like really go for it. Because like, 
if you go all the way out there, maybe you reel it in and, or maybe you stay out there. And like, that is, I like, I just keep going back to this feeling of like generosity and like mama really, they're, they're really, they're just sitting there and they're going like, yeah, let's do it. Like, let's do this weird thing for a weekend and let's see how it goes. Like, I'm ready to do this with you. And they're generous with their time and with their space and with their, like, I text with Mia you, and I think that's really cool because she's, like, <laughs> the artistic director of this super important, really amazing theater, and she'll, like, text me and be like, how are you doing? I heard you're sick. And I'm like, that's really special. That's, that's really so valuable. That you found a home and that you found it so young. Yeah. And you're, they're trusting you, like, and they're giving you the space and the time to really find your voice. It's exactly that. It's exactly trust. It's, it's exactly that. And like, I, I really, I, I, I went for it. Like I put up, I'm, I, I really want to be creating super weird stuff. And like, I want, I want young queer and non-binary individuals to be able to like look at my scripts and go finally you know what I mean yeah like because it's not it's not often and it's it's really hard to see it and to hear it because it's just it's it's just not there the way it needs to be and the people who are doing it don't get seen all that much well, and I think and this has its own value in its own way, but a lot of times, like, I think, like, maybe the queer community is challenged to, like, put their stories in the framework. Oh, yeah. Of the heteronormative story. For sure. And there's this type of success in getting your story seen on the same platform as that. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have to be that. Yeah. It can be this shape over here that's totally different. Yeah. And I think also... And, and be a success. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the bookcase. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't have to be the bookcase. It doesn't have to be the coming out story. Yeah. But I think also, like, going off of that very good point, it's also this idea that, like, we kind of get trapped under this umbrella of queer theater. And there is this feeling of, like, oh, am I am I going to go see a queer piece of art? Right. And or a feminist piece of art. Like, or a feminist yeah. piece of art. It's and like, like, it's just about humans, guys. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And there is, and the thing is, like, I, so right now, I'm writing a kitchen sink play, but I want it to be really queer. I want a really queer kitchen sink play. And I don't, I don't, like, at the end of the day, I don't want it to be, like, sitting there and it's going like this is a I want to take back that word of queer in the sense that it doesn't necessarily label it as for a specific community and other communities won't understand it so much as like queering something means upsetting it queering something means taking what you perceive to be normal and understood about a convention or an element of life and turning it upside down and letting you see the colors underneath the things that you're not really understanding about it the dynamics that are weird and erotic and misunderstood and kind of gross and pretty violent and and we had a we had a review for martyrs and in it 
they had this line that I found really interesting where they were like, um, the play is dripping with estrogen, but <laughs> Sotus injects a shot of testosterone with the unexpected violence. And first of all, I was like, that's a very like gender specific, like that's a very heteronormative way of looking at it. But I sit there and I go, violence is inherent to femininity. Like there is something inherently violent about femininity and there is both pleasure and pain in that. And so I don't sit there and I don't go like, oh, the second that I see violence on stage, there's like a masculine energy that enters. And like, I think that a lot of people look at theater that way. They're like, oh, when a play is like smooth music and talking, it's a very feminine play. But like when there's blood and violence, like, oh, masculinity (laughs) has come into this play. And I'm just like, I really want to upset that. Like, I want to upset this idea that like femininity isn't inherently violent and there isn't like this misunderstood intensity that comes with it and that to me is super exciting because I really want to see like a really powerful upsetting female character that's violent and sexy and wrong and weird and difficult to process because we don't get that that much and we're not we don't we don't have access to that that much and I think that there's something really exciting about that and something that there is like this this there are these there are these lines that are drawn where you just kind of sit there and you go oh you have to do it this one way and like if you queer this thing it means it's a queer play now and if it's a queer play now that means that like all the straight people aren't going to understand it and we have to like walk them in and like explain this thing and go oh this is queering something and it's like no they <laughs> or they're can they're just not going to buy a ticket yeah or they're just not yeah. going to buy a ticket when really it's just like that kind of stuff lives in everybody like yeah. even like they're going to uh, find themselves in it too yeah they're absolutely going to find themselves in it yeah. and like it's really important to open that up and let people see themselves in ways that they didn't expect themselves to get seen and like yeah it's just it's not I it's it's not common and it's really disappointing when it's not common because I want to see it I want to see all of that really badly <laughs> like I'm so excited to see your play on Sunday oh I'm so excited for you to come um, see it when you are in a like in a dark place and feeling uninspired or bogged down or whatever it is, are there any tangible things that you reach for again and again to help you out, like a book you reread or music you listen to or a place you go or something like that? So this is going to seem like a really weird ritual, but there is... Um, <sighs> when I'm really sad... And I really need to cry. And I'm on the subway. I put on Northwest Passage by Stan Rogers. Oh, I don't know this song. It is like a Canadian sea shanty (laughs) with multiple harmonies. And it's devastating. (laughs) And I have so many times sit on the subway with sunglasses on, weeping, (laughs) listening to this song on repeat. It's 
devastating. It's just like a bunch of men singing in harmony about like going down, like Death blazing this, <laughs> blazing this trail that no one, like their ancestors were on. And it's just like, it's devastating. And, uh, <laughs> I just like, I, I listen to it. It's very important to me when I do that. Um, so yeah, Northwest Passage by Stan Rogers is really important to me. I probably am saying some part of that incorrectly. Um, I like remember things in half. Um, so that's really important to me. Um, baths, baths are really important. Like just submerging yourself in something comforting and warm. That's really important, I think. Um, one of my best friends, they do this really sweet thing where they text me a page from like the Buddhist daily, like daily like notes. So they text me a photograph of like whatever page they read every single day. Ah. So like we text every single day, like in that way. That's and sometimes, so like sometimes I don't respond. Sometimes I don't even read it. But like they always text it to me. And that sometimes I like wake up with anxiety, and that definitely helps me and calms me down and like gives me just gives me this reminder that someone's out there thinking about me in that way and uh so that's a really cool ritual that I definitely recommend for yeah just to be just in like, touch with someone just to be to in touch with there. someone that way like just to be in touch with someone on that kind of a basis and just like know that like know that they know you're out there and like you know that they're out there and just like yeah, having someone I love that. who has your back in that way I think that's a really important thing um meditating for sure um I do like I like have fallen off the meditation wagon so many times I'm like off it right now but every single night I go to sleep telling myself I'll wake up and do it but meditating when I do it is dope I love it um so that's really important I think I'm like a I think also when I'm in a really dark place like that, going to the bookstore and finding something that will speak to me is also really important. I don't necessarily have that many books that I reread so much. But something new. But something new, yeah. like a new conversation. There's hope in new books. Yeah. It's, it's exciting. It's really exciting. Yeah. It's really, there's just like, there's a, there's definitely an electricity and an energy. And sometimes even just like browsing your own bookshelf and like realizing like, oh, there's been this book that's been sitting here that I haven't touched. Like I got, um, after Katie Acker by Chris Krause and I like started reading it after my last spiral. And that's been really important to me. Like it's been really important to me to like read about like to like the writer is a complicated narrator and the subject is a is a complicated subject hmm. like Katie Acker is a really complicated individual and Chris Krause analyzing the life of Katie Acker is also really complicated so like when I feel complicated it feels great to dive into that and to like yeah. see that kind of nuanced conversation um, and then the last question is, have you seen anything recently that you want to recommend of any art form? <clears throat> Good question. 
Um, I know you've been in the thick of your own show, but... But still, there's like... um, I think Christine Haruna Lee is one of the most important, like, performers and writers out there right now. So I think everyone should just, like, have her on their radar. And I think everyone should really be going to go see her work a lot. Um... Katie Acker, she's really complicated and she's problematic. She has a lot of like vocabulary and stuff that um, I don't support personally. However, she's a really, she's like a really uncomfortable woman. And I think that- She's a theater artist? No, she's a novelist. She wrote a lot, but she did write plays actually. She like wrote a bunch of plays that never got done. Mm -hmm. Um, But she's also another- like she's a she's a writer that I think people really need to have on their radar. Um, a friend of mine, uh, a friend of mine, um, is doing this piece called the Canyon. Um, Freddie Adelhart. They're doing this piece on the Canyon called the Canyon about loneliness, which is an interactive theater piece. Mm. And I saw them when they first started like playing around with this idea of the piece, when we were at the Lambda Literary um, Writers Retreat together in Los Angeles. Um, And they like first started workshopping this idea and now it's like turning into a full piece and I think that's a really beautiful experience. Um, Just like anyone who's young and queer and experimenting I think is really important I think that I like personally consider it a responsibility to work hard to know young artists my age doing weird stuff I think it's really important yeah just like putting in the extra effort to like get to know that that to seek that out that's definitely the most rewarding shows that I've ever seen are shows that I like worked hard to find and to pursue and to understand and to see that isn't necessarily going to be in timeout isn't necessarily going to get talked about and right I think that's it's so rewarding and it's so cool and it's so good like I mean, there's just so many people doing stuff in this city. I know, right? <laughs> it's like wild. It's yeah. wild how many people are doing things right now. So yeah, and then everything at Wamama. I like. Of I course. I love Wamama. <laughs> I love them. I love them very much. Thank you so much for doing Thank this. Thank you. This was really fun. I had a really great time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of the Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the Compass Podcast. Pledges start at as little as $1 a month. You'll get access to bonus content and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please rate or review in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brandon Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez.
See you next time. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There is enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.